live from Washington, D.C. every Wednesday from 3 to 4 p.m. for an hour-long Generation Progress takeover. Check us out at genprogress.org or on Twitter at genprogress. Hello and welcome to the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be talking a bit about uh, the rash of uh, shootings over this past two weeks here, especially the last weekend, specifically in El Paso, Texas, um, where uh, 22 people were tragically killed uh, by someone who was spouting uh, and putting into practice white supremacist uh, anger. Joining us uh, from Texas is Mario Carrillo, uh, America's Voice Texas State Director. Mario, thanks for being on the line with us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And so, as as mentioned uh, very briefly in the as as we open the show here, um, over the weekend there was a violent attack fueled by uh, white supremacy and hatred that took the lives of 22 people in El Paso. Uh, and as your organization noted in its press release following the attack, the shooter's manifesto included phrases and rhetoric straight out of President Trump's tweets and rally speeches. Uh, Mario, you grew up in El Paso. Uh, what can you tell us about the impact that this incident has had on the on the local community and the, the Latinx community more generally? Yeah, absolutely. So having grown up in El Paso, um, I'm heartbroken certainly still reeling. Uh, this was an attack against people who look like me. It could have easily been my mom or my dad that had been in that Walmart, that mall next to the Walmart is one that I have been to hundreds of times in my life. So I think initially when, when I started getting word of the shooting, I just reached out to my parents to make sure that they were okay. My sister, my friends and family, I still have a lot of people who um, I love and are very dear to me in the city. And I think once the um, motive started becoming more clear, uh, it really was just a lot to take in. You know, it's, it's been a very heavy couple of days, and um, it's really unfortunate that someone with so much hatred in their heart would drive so many miles, hundreds of miles, to a border community that has historically been known as one of the safest cities in the country uh, to attack people of color, Latinos, uh, specifically uh, because of the color of their skin. So I- I'm still heartbroken. El Paso, for me, was the introduction to America. Uh, my family and I migrated to El Paso when I was five years old. I had never been to the U.S., and it welcomed me with open arms, and it continues welcoming asylum seekers, immigrants from all over the world. So uh, it's, it's heartbreaking. I, I have appreciated the response from city leaders, so much courage there on the border, and uh, I know it'll bounce back, but it's, it's certainly still a very difficult time there. Absolutely, and, um, you know, I think the um, the impacts of it being felt, I think, far and wide as well, certainly more acutely uh, in El Paso, but as a as a family that speaks Spanish here in D.C., it's something that's that's on our minds as we walk out the door as well, um, and, and has been for some time, knowing that that uh, rhetoric uh, getting transferred into into violent acts isn't inconceivable, but to see it done in this concrete, in this directive way is is uh, still quite um, 
I don't know if shocking is the right word. It doesn't it, that doesn't do it justice, but uh, certainly impactful uh, in terms of just thinking through what what safety looks like. And so uh, certainly El Paso will will bounce back here, but can only imagine the the impact it's having right now, and and, and an impact that that will never go away, even as the bounce back happens. Yeah, no, I think I think you're exactly right, and I think it's something that um, this hostility towards immigrants and Latinos is something that I, I understand predates Donald Trump and his administration, but I think it certainly hasn't helped. Um, and I, I don't think anyone ever expects something like what happened in El Paso as shocking and honestly a domestic terrorist attack. I, I don't think anyone fully expects it, but just given where the rhetoric has gone on the issue of immigration in terms of the demonizing of, of immigrants and Latinos and the dehumanization of immigrants and Latinos, it, it's sadly not a surprise that someone uh, took words straight out of the president's mouth and put them into violent action. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's interesting. I think a lot of the conversation that we see right now uh, is um, reasonably focusing on comprehensive gun violence prevention measures, including background checks and a, a federal ban on assault rifles. Um, and all those things are needed um, and necessary and things that this country has needed for a very long time. But I think, uh, as you're saying, it just it's so important to remember that gun reform can't be the only response to this crisis. Um, sure. You know, like, uh, <laughs> as a country, we kind of have to work together to continue to trying to dismantle white supremacy at its core. You know, if we don't stop white supremacy, violence against people of color will continue with or without guns. Um, so I just, I mean, I think that's such an important uh, piece of this conversation um, that is uh, horrifying and necessary um, with this particular uh, with this particular incident. So. Yeah, and I, and I feel that we really need to do some soul searching as a country. I think uh, if nothing else, this this tragedy in El Paso has made us much more aware of the realities of what it's been like to be Latino or to be an immigrant in this country. Now, I I said this in November of 2016 when President Trump was elected, and it, it sadly continued since then. But I've I've never felt less welcome in this country that has been my home now for almost 30 years now. As I mentioned, we moved here when I was five. My parents are both naturalized citizens. I'm a naturalized citizen. I grew up in El Paso. I, I didn't speak English when I moved, and uh, it took me no time at all to learn the language, but even to this day, my parents still, God bless them, they don't necessarily know English super well, but El Paso being the, the binational community and bilingual community that it is, um, has really stepped up to the plate to show the country the best that we can be. Um, but unfortunately, it's still something that a lot of folks don't like or understand. But I, I wish they knew the El Paso that I know. Um, and, and I really feel like it would help us take the, the debate in a different direction. So speaking of knowing the El Paso that you know, um, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out what they can do to be helpful right now um, and really want answers from people who know the community well and know what the community um, needs the most. What is it if people want to be helpful? Um, I mean, like don't between like donations, between like uh, calling representatives and that sort of thing. Like what is it that you're seeing um, that people in El Paso are, are looking for um, at just since the country is in a space where like so many people want to pitch in and help however they can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for the city itself, there is a donation fund. I don't have it off the top of my head, but I'd be happy to look for it and uh, share it with you all. But it, it, there is one official one that uh, people have been asked to donate to, but 
around the country, not only for El Paso too, but for Dayton as well, e even though the, the motivations might not be the same, or we don't know necessarily what the motivation of Dayton was at this point, it was still something that the country is reeling from as well. So just to see so much solidarity uh, around the country for communities like El Paso and, and Dayton, that, that's been really inspiring to see as well. Initially, there was a big ask for, for blood, uh, and the city of El Paso really stepped up. Uh, there were lines just around the corner from, from the blood donation center. So it, it's been incredible, the response that we've seen. Um, and beyond that, honestly, we need to talk to our elected officials. We need to really push them at understanding that this is something that they can help resolve. Um, and it's actually their responsibility to resolve. So write to them, call them, tweet at them. They generally do respond. Try to set up meetings if they're in your district, especially now during August recess. A lot of our elected officials, especially from Congress in Washington, are back in their district. So I think it's imperative and incumbent upon all of us to, to try to make sure that we tell elected officials what we feel is necessary so that we can feel safe, right? And beyond the issue of, of gun violence, we need to talk to elected officials, especially those who are seeking re-election and those who might be seeking election for the first time about what kind of messages they're sending out, what kind of ads, what kind of ads they're uh, p pushing out that don't have language that is dehumanizing towards immigrants, and that includes words that we saw in the manifesto like invasion or uh, infestation. So we just have to be really mindful about the languages that we use and knowing that words have consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're talking right now to Mario Carrillo. He is the America's Voice Texas State Director. He is also an El Paso native. Um, and Mario, where can folks find more information about the work that you do uh, online via Twitter or a website? Yeah, for sure. Uh, we can guide you to americasvoice.org for our website. We have a lot of great information on immigration. It's the issue that we focus on. Uh, the most, and we have a lot of explainers, so if you have questions on immigration, on policy, on where the debate stands today, you can go to americasvoice.org, or you can follow us both on Twitter and on Facebook uh, for more information on immigration, um, if you're interested, which we, hope, which we hope you are. Great. Thank you, Mario. And we will be right back with you uh, after this commercial break. You're listening to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, we'll talk to you again in a second. Welcome back to the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Brent J. Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. And we have Mario Carrillo on the line from uh, the state of Texas, America's Voice, Texas State Director. Thanks for joining us again, Mario. Happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, and so we've uh, we've spent the, the first segment here talking a bit about the, um, the attack over the weekend, the shooting in El Paso, um, and the motivations behind it. Uh, I want to I want to uh, sort of switch gears just a little bit here uh, because we know that El Paso has been in the crosshairs of uh, of Donald Trump's rhetoric um, over the past uh, I, I want to say a few months, but that's not even true. Uh, over yeah. you know since since campaign time uh, and certainly his racist rhetoric has predated that. Um, but we also know that El Paso is in fact one of the safest communities um, in the United States. And so we'd love to just hear a bit about how El Paso has been and is that welcoming place that you described um, from your childhood and how the city has responded to asylum seekers over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on your first point, it is true that President Trump uh, 
only uses the border community as a prop for his anti-immigrant agenda. It's only when it's convenient for him. He brings up the border when it comes to building more walls or when it comes to separating families. I think we can't ignore the fact that family separation began in El Paso, so that cruel, cruel punishment to parents making that arduous trek began in El Paso, so it's become this testing ground for his most, most anti-immigrant policies, and it's unfortunate that it's come to that because, as you mentioned, El Paso is and has been one of the safest cities in the country now for going on more than 10 years, and it's, it's fascinating to me because uh, a lot of a lot of Republicans would have you believe that those who live on the U.S.-Mexico border are under some sort of imminent danger just because of our proximity to Mexico and uh, for El Paso, you know, we have Ciudad Juarez on the other side of the border, which um, unfortunately is and has been one of the most dangerous cities in the world now for some time. But you haven't seen that violence trickle, and it's unfortunate now that that violence that um, so many folks expected to hit the border actually came from within Texas, from a terrorist here that was born and raised here, right? So um, that's how we've seen the border play out now over the last couple of years, and it's frankly heartbreaking, and they only really try to talk about the border when it comes to militarization, when our governor, Greg Abbott, wants to send more National Guard members. So I really wish that, especially today, since President Trump is, is on his way to El Paso now as we speak, I wish he would really get to know the El Paso that we all know, right, the one that has been welcomed. I mean, it has been the place where so many people have come, and it is their introduction to America. I've heard it uh, referred to as the New Ellis Island, and it's true in so many ways, right? It's, it's the introduction to America for, for people from the world over. And the uh, reception that I've seen, especially from organizations like the Annunciation House, which has done such a fantastic job on such a limited budget of, of providing a, a warm meal and a place for asylum seekers to stay before they head off to um, wherever they're going into the United States, it really does show the best of what we can be. Um, but it is unfortunate that a lot of our state leaders continue seeing uh, the border only as something that they can use for their agenda. Yeah, it seems like uh, it seems like the conversations around the border and 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 the uh, the conversations around so-called caravans, which is in and of itself a dehumanizing term, not the worst that's come out of Trump's mouth, but certainly uh, in that in that range, right? It seems like everything's just in this range. Uh, those conversations come out the militarization of the border. Oftentimes when either there's a midterm election coming up or there's some other political c catastrophe that he's trying to uh, distract from. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we saw it in 2018, right? I feel like the last couple of months leading up to the midterm elections in 2018, he went all in on the, the caravan ads and the messaging and the invasion. And what we saw was that it didn't work. Uh, we saw gi giant gains by Democrats in the House of Representatives, and I feel like that was a, a big repudiation of, of the message that Trump was trying to use, which is really to divide, right? It's, it's really what it's intended to do and to distract voters from uh, the issues that matter most to them. But I feel like uh, if, if we're not able to, to change that, uh, he's going to continue doing it, right? And, and I, I wish that he would learn something from it, but I feel like I have... Uh, pr pretty much no hope at this point that he's willing to change any of that, as, as we've already seen um, after his quote-unquote um, uh, teleprompter speech that was supposed to unite the country. He's already gone back to the way that he's always been, which is trying to divide. So uh, right. I'm not hopeful for him, but I'm hopeful for the country. Yeah, as soon as he could get back to his Twitter fingers, that's what he did. Um, and, Absolutely. Uh, and uh, tried to even both sides, if you will, this uh, an attack that can't be both sides. 
Yeah. And, and but I I I do want to just highlight that last point. Uh, we may not be hopeful about about him as a person coming around, but uh, remain hopeful that this country will soundly reject uh, the white supremacist violence uh, that took the lives in in uh, in El Paso over the weekend, and and that may have also played a role in in the shooting a week ago in Gilroy, California, uh, where one of yeah. our own team members was. Uh, it is from Gilroy at the uh, Garlic Festival there, um, and so as we um, as as we sort of have just uh, just under just around a minute left here, Mario, I'm really thinking about uh, that hope, um, and what does it look like for you in your role, um, and in 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 and in your space in Texas in terms of how you how you hope to to move the communities forward and and, and have a greater impact so that we can move beyond. Not, I don't mean to say beyond this incident, but beyond this space that we're occupying as a nation uh, that unfortunately is being infiltrated with hatred and, and vitriol directed towards people of color and Latinos in particular. Yeah, I mean, to put it simply, we are at a moment of truth for our country, and I think we are at a moment now where we have to decide what kind of country we want to live in moving forward. Uh, we have to do some soul-searching. I think we have to have some really, really difficult conversations. Uh, super quickly, last week, I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and visited the Memorial for Peace and Justice, which mm-hmm. is meant to really highlight the history of hatred and lynching in our country. And, um, you know, they, they built that there so that people can have that really difficult conversation. And I feel like as much as, as much progress as we like to think that we've made, and I think we have as a country, there's still so much more progress to go. And unless we're willing to really have those difficult conversations, even within our own families, um, I'm afraid we won't be able to move forward together. So I just encourage everyone to, to be open about why it is that we can't go down the path of hatred, why it is that we can't go down the path of racism. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Mario. That was Mario Carrillo, and we will be right back with the Generation Progress takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. Brother, brother, brother. Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm your co-host, Ranch Cohen. And I'm Charlotte Hancock. Uh, thanks for coming back with us. We are joined now by our second guest, uh, Dr. Pete Simi, Associate Professor at the Department of Sociology at Chapman University and the Director of the Earl Babby Research Center. Uh, Dr. Simi, thanks so much for, for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And and, and your research um, focuses on, uh, unfortunately, what is a uh, particularly timely uh, um, issue today. Um, and communities of color have been aware of and, and dealing with the realities of white supremacist violence for generations. Uh, but it seems like much of our country is just now finally uh, acknowledging its existence. You've been studying this for years. Could you could you help provide some context for our listeners? Uh, we heard at the in the first segment a, a bit about what happened in El Paso over the weekend, uh, but we just left some context for our listeners about the existence of white supremacist violence in this country and and specifically this tactic of, of lone actor terrorism, if you will. Sure, sure. Well, you, you rightly point out that this has been with us for uh, far longer than we've been willing to acknowledge or admit. We have a problem with denial when it comes to white supremacist terrorism and, uh, you know, related issues. Um, it's uh, deeply entrenched in our society. Uh, it has a long, long history. 
And uh, in particular, uh, this kind of what they call lone actor, which is kind of a misnomer. Uh, we, we see these incidents of violence like El Paso as this single person who's acting alone, kind of uh, just a um, you know lone gunman, crazed gunman type of thing. Uh, we tend to not view it within the larger context, which it should be viewed, which is this uh, larger movement, the white supremacist movement, promotes individuals to go out and commit violence on behalf of the larger movement. And so that's what you see in the man, in you know, so-called manifestos and so forth, where they're talking about uh, essentially um, why they're doing this and how they're doing it as a way to try and further this larger cause. And, and the movement promotes this through speeches, through books, uh, uh, podcasts now. Uh, there's this extensive um, uh, virtual uh, digital environment uh, that, um, you know, really is organized around white supremacist ideas and works to promote things like, like um, this type of violence. And this has been happening for decades, if not longer. You could actually go back to the original founding of the Ku Klux Klan shortly after the Civil War during the Reconstruction era, where groups like the Klan across the former Confederacy committed these kind of targeted acts of violence, killing literally thousands of people after the Civil War to try and promote uh, essentially a restoration of a white supremacist society. So we've been dealing with this for a long, long time, but we tend to want to deny it and ignore it. And um, now we're starting to uh, try and come to terms with it. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of folks view it as a new problem, and which is clearly not the case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to dig in a little bit on some of uh, the the pieces here that you mentioned about um, on fighting, how, how this is a sort of terrorism, you know, this is terrorism. Um, and uh, a recent Center for American Progress report um, from the national security team noted the uh, just the incoherence of having spent billions, billions of dollars to fight terrorism inspired by foreign extremists while spending nearly nothing to fight the domestic threat of white nationalism and supremacy um, and other radicalized groups within the country. Why is this and why haven't we tackled this problem? You know, I think on some level um, it reflects the fact that it's easier for, I think, probably, you know, any society to identify external threats and point the finger at someone or something or some group or some movement on the outside, something that's seen as foreign to, to society, and say that's the problem, right? And it's harder to identify um, something like this that comes from within society and say, you know, the, these individuals pose a, a real threat and are, and are really actually a real threat to the, our democracy. And um, we've, we've had a real difficult time with that. There's, there's also issues in terms of the fact that this movement has had its, um, you know, has been connected to the system, the, you know, in terms of, you know, we've, if you look at historically uh, the Klan and its connection to both local law enforcement and, and even uh, more broadly. If you look at the extent to which white supremacists have been able to establish a presence in the U.S. military uh, across the different branches of the U.S. military, um, you know, this is a, a movement that comes from within society and that has a very deeply entrenched presence. And so it makes it difficult to come to terms with that, I think, as, as we want to try and address this problem. Yeah, I just I just want to put, put a uh, sort of... Uh, go off of that last point that you made 
Um, there was a recent report that there were uh, dozens of, uh, if not hundreds, of Philadelphia police officers that were uh, posting white supremacist uh, or otherwise racist uh, comments on, on various digital media platforms, and these are police officers. You've talked about the way it's been entrenched in military. Um, and I think, uh, for me, that raises a couple things. One is how much it's part of why it may be difficult for folks to acknowledge is it also means acknowledging that we haven't, as a nation, moved away from slavery and the enslavement of people, specifically people of African descent, in a way that many people want us to. That that was a long time ago. Get over it. Move on. In some ways, the white supremacist movement is is the, the legacy of that, I would argue. Um, and two, this isn't relegated to the Deep South, which I think a lot of the country likes to say is, well, that's over there. That's only in Mississippi. That's only in Alabama. In fact, it's in California and Pennsylvania and Connecticut. Um, and so wondering how, if you see those threads sort of play out through your work as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, if, A, if we, if we really want to kind of come to terms with our past and the, the, the extent to which these problems continue to, to uh, plague our society, we have to have truth and reconciliation. And the, the reconciliation part can't come unless we have the truth part. And we have just done an abysmal job with the truth part. We don't teach U.S. history in a way that accurately depicts what, 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 where we've been and where we're going. Uh, so we've done a poor job in that realm. Uh, and just more broadly, as a society, we tend to, you know, say, well, this was a long time ago. It, you know, it doesn't have any consequences for today. Why are people still talking about it? So there's this really kind of ongoing effort to minimize and deny this, this aspect of our society. And I think your, your point about the geographic way in which we try and marginalize the issue and say it's only certain pockets of the country, we do the same thing in terms of socioeconomic status. We like to say that, you know, these groups are only attractive to people of lower education or lower socioeconomic status, when in fact that's not the case at all. They have very broad appeal across uh, various segments of the white population. Uh, so, you know, this, again, the, you know, I keep saying this, it's more entrenched than we want to admit. And so until we actually are willing to acknowledge that degree of entrenchment, it makes it hard to really make the kind of progress that, um, you know, we would like to see. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, these views aren't new. Um, and as you're saying, you know, the, the concept of white supremacy isn't new. And this vi this violence, um, this sort of violence is uh, there's a long historical context of um race uh race-based violence or violence um against people of color um but it feels like it feels to i think to many people like things have changed in recent years um have they uh and if so how well a few things have changed um so one i would point to the technology that's now available. Um, white supremacist movement were one of the first movements to really recognize the power of the internet. In fact, white supremacists in the mid-80s were using electronic bulletin boards. So it's not really folks that have been monitoring uh, these types of groups. It's not a surprise to see how um, you know prolific they, they've become in terms of social media platforms, gaming platforms, podcasts, and, and the like. Uh, but that technology provides them with a reach that uh, you know obviously didn't exist prior to, prior to the technology being available, and at the same time that's tied up with a real mainstreaming 
of white supremacist ideas where they've been on their own trying to rebrand their ideas in order to make it sound more uh, kind of palpable to, to a larger segment of the population. Uh, trying to really um, utilize uh, and galvanize people around kind of hot-button issues like immigration. And so while it wasn't that long ago when um, immigration, if it were being described as an invasion, you would see that among white supremacists. But now we're seeing this, you know, being uh, these terms being used in, 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 in the mainstream, including the White House. And so the political environment today, I would say, is also an important kind of differentiator in that with the 2008 election of our first African-American president, obviously that, that galvanized white supremacists who saw you know, literally kind of their worst nightmare coming, coming to fore. Um, and um, since that 2008, uh, a lot of increased activity. But then with the campaign in 2016 with Donald Trump, providing them with somebody who could literally speak their language um, and then has continued to do so after his election. This has a real kind of emboldening effect on these folks in that they see a real opportunity to kind of maintain, uh, to kind of create a more visible presence for themselves. Um, so, so we've seen this in recent years, and, and you know, in part now we're seeing in 2018 this level of violence. Which again, the violence isn't new, but we're certainly seeing a, a, a higher level in this most recent year. That you know certainly cannot be disconnected from the political rhetoric that we're seeing come out of the White House and Congress. Uh, you've got folks like Steve King talking about white genocide replacement theory. So I mean, this is just becoming so much more kind of pervasive and mainstream in terms of the ideas that were once more fringe to the white supremacist movement have really kind of reemerged and taken on a much more mainstream presence. Yeah, I think I think that's that's part of what's so shocking in some ways about the recent violence is the uh, is the fact that the that the current occupant of the White House in Donald Trump uh, has been cited as inspiration now for more than one uh, uh, terror attack. Uh, even going, you know, it, it seems like distant history now, and, and it didn't take place here in the United States, but in New Zealand, uh, where the rhetoric was mirrored from Donald Trump's speeches and, and sort of talked about Donald Trump being an inspiration. Again, going back to uh, the, the white replacement theory, uh, followed by the shooting in Pittsburgh at the synagogue, where that person then referenced the New Zealand shooter as inspiration, and now in El Paso, where you have a manifesto of an individual who, again, is is essentially quoting the president of the United States uh, as inspiration for, or at least as rationale for uh, his his acts of violence. And so, uh, the fact that it, it's getting traced back to the White House as and Donald Trump as inspiration for this to happen is part of what makes this so shocking. And I and I'd say I I'm not I'm not overly surprised here at all. I think we've we've people have said, oh, maybe Donald Trump will become more presidential the longer he's in office, or maybe when he gets elected, he'll become more presidential. And anyone who knows anything about this man's life didn't say that, uh, <laughs> going back to the Central Park Five and, and, and even beyond that. Um, but I think part of what's been more disappointing for me has been to watch the silence of so many, both in terms of voters, of people who say, well, um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with this, or in some cases I support this, but also elected members of Congress, many Republicans who I may have disagreed with on tax policy or I disagreed with on some foreign policy, but I expected to stand up uh, to some of the most egregious 
uh, egregious things that are happening. And so I don't know if I'm shocked, but I'm definitely disappointed. Uh, and, and so what role do sort of your everyday American uh, person have here? What, what responsibility do we have as individuals in moving forward? Well, it's substantial. You know, and it, it happens in, 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 on a number of different levels. Um, we have responsibility in terms of how we cast votes, but we have a responsibility in terms of how we conduct our lives on an everyday basis. And when we encounter someone who's promoting uh, certain kinds of ideas, xenophobic, racist, anti-Semitic, or otherwise, do we look the other way? Do we uh, kind of try and pretend like, oh, they were just joking? You know, do we minimize? Do we not want to ruffle feathers by saying something? You know, we sit on our hands, uh, we bite our tongue, you know, and, and the more times that we do that, the more credence we're giving to these kinds of beliefs and sentiments. And so every silence is in, in some ways a tacit form of approval. And so for even folks that don't support but aren't doing anything, in fact, they are supporting. Um, and then also I think there's you know, some, one of the things that I find frightening about what's happening with the mainstreaming part is that there are, I've talked to people who are you know, reposting things, for instance, on Facebook that come basically with white supremacist propaganda. They're not aware, I mean, they, they support the idea, but they're not aware of where it's coming from. And, you know, I've had a chance to sit down in one case and talk to a person about that. And, and they, when they found out where it was coming from, it did change their mind to some extent, at least. And they've stopped reposting. And so, you know, a, a lot of this is also, you know, trying to educate people and have conversations with folks that were able to about, do you realize exactly the ideas and the beliefs and the, the actions that you're supporting? Do you, do you realize where it's coming from and where it can go? Um, so I, I think there are ways that we can try and confront this, but um, it, it's very uh, difficult. Yeah, and uh, as as we learned and have learned, uh, we're not just fighting the the white supremacist movement's propaganda, but also, sadly, uh, the Russian and other foreign interference taking advantage of that propaganda to even sow more division. So we have uh, just about uh, a minute left here. Um, where could folks find more information about your research, perhaps read more about the work that you've done in this space? Yeah, um, I, I can be contacted through the Chapman University webpage uh, under, under my name, my faculty page, and that has a list of, of some of the work I've done. I've also co-authored a book, uh, American Swastika, Inside the White Power Movement's Hidden Spaces of Hate, that's based on field work I conducted with active members of, of different types of white supremacist groups. Um, and that you know, really kind of deals with a lot of the different aspects um, in terms of how they raise children to try and kind of uh, transmit and, and carry on their movement. Uh, also addresses some of the aspects in terms of virtual cyberspace issues and how they use that. Um, so it, it deals with a lot of the issues we've discussed here today. Great. Well, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate the time and the research um, that you've been doing. Hugely important. Uh, you have been listening to Dr. Peter Simi from Chapman University on the Leslie Marshall Show. This is the Generation Progress Takeover. I'm your co-host, Charlotte Hancock. And I'm Brent Cohen. And we will be right back with the news. a talk media news reporter, Bob Nay, joining us. Bob, welcome back. 
Well, thank you. So glad to be back. Yeah, great to have you. Um, so out of the tragedies uh, in Dayton and El Paso this past weekend, um, Trump has gone to visit both of those sites, uh, sites of mass shootings. Um, how have those visits been going uh, with with him actually on the ground there? Well, there's been protests, you know, of course, and then opinions, you know, the uh, mayor of Dayton, uh, she made it clear before he got there that she was going to tell him what she thought about, you know, his lack of, of support uh, dealing with the gun side, you know, of the of the issue. And, of course, it's, you know, it's been controversial. Uh, he visited the, you know, uh, the hospital uh, for under, under about an hour. And, of course, he's on his way now to El Paso. But, you know, we knew it would be with controversy. And then he and Beto O'Rourke got into a, a Twitter fight, too. Uh, before he left, uh, you know, uh, well, in the last 24 hours. Uh, and is that to do with, uh, what does that have to do with? Well, uh, Beto had uh, talked about how he runs his rallies, white nationalism, you know, et cetera. And then the president made a, a comment about Beto's name, uh, about the fact that, uh, you know, his name was his it's a fake name, basically. It's not really, you know, Hispanic, and he used the name and that type of thing. So obviously, it has nothing to do with anything, but it was said. Yeah, and I'm seeing also that Senator Sherrod Brown says to said to Trump when meeting with uh, when Trump was meeting with first responders, um, Trump offered to give the police officers awards, and uh, Sherrod Brown said. Um, Mr. President, respectfully, the most important thing you can do for these police officers is take assault weapons off the street. So, um, right, right. Yeah. Um, and, and, so- and, I, and I think this is, you know, we've seen this, you, you, you've seen it, I've seen it, where, you know, these uh, tragedies happen and then a few days later they, you know, go away until the next one. But this one seems to really take a whole different uh, flavor, I think, here of the of the discussion of guns and and legislation and, you know, mental health and a lot of other issues. Yeah. Um, so also seeing uh, the Dow taking a dive this week, what's going on there? Well, it has. The Dow has taken a dive. Uh, other, you know, China has manipulated its currency. Uh, so that would help, I guess, China's end of it, of not buying as many American, you know, imports coming in. Uh, India has uh, taken a look at it, you know, it, its currency. I mean, so there's a lot of things going on around the world, a lot of tensions. Also, the trade war, obviously, between China and America, you know, has uh, began to uh, have its effect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bob, for joining us for the news. Um, This has been the Generation Progress Takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show. Uh, I am your co-host, Charlotte Hancock, and Brent Cohen and I will be back next week, Wednesday, 3 to 4 p.m. See you all then.